Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. Well, let's keep the good vibes rolling in and get into a few amazing scary stories that we have curated for you. Let us begin as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I went to heaven and saw what God really was. Written by CIA Herb. As I drove home from work in the middle of the night, a crying woman covered in red came running out of the forest. I saw her only milliseconds before she left the thick grove of trees on my right. Her eyes were wide and uncomprehending, her mouth open in a perpetual shriek, her clothes torn into rags but otherwise, she was beautiful and young. I saw only the merest glimpse of a slender white leg before I instinctively turned the steering wheel all the way to the left, trying not to hit her. At the speed that I was going and with the constant rain falling down from the sky, I quickly lost control of the car. I missed her by mere inches as I swerved into the oncoming lane where thankfully no cars were coming. In slow motion, I saw the road pass by and then start to rise up to meet me as the car began to flip. I felt like I was in the air for minutes, but in reality, it was likely only fractions of a second. And then the car landed and the black pavement rushing to meet me, and my vision turned to blackness. I woke up suddenly in a white room, the walls seeming to be made of a high-intensity LED light. They were so bright and white that it almost hurt to look at them. I squinted my eyes slightly and they slowly began to adjust to the overwhelming white light surrounding me. I stood up and looked around, rising off a bed made of the same kind of light. Where am I? I asked. No one answered. I began to walk forward and a building began to materialize around me suddenly. The white light all draining out of the bottom of the room like water running down a drain. I was in a castle in the entryway looking out massive black gated doors. I looked behind me and saw the bed was just a bench with flat pillows inscribed with roses and cherubs. The castle seemed to stretch forever in a straight line. Hallways with endless mahogany doors disappearing into a point in the horizon. No one moved in the rooms of the hallway. Outside birds chirped pleasantly and a tropical sweet-smelling breeze blew past me. I turned my attention back to the front gate, deciding to go outside. As soon as I had stepped outside the shade of the castle, a blazing sun warmed me. I instinctively put my arm above my eyes to dim the summer light. As my pupils constricted and I was able to see better, I realized that the light overhead was not coming from the sun, but many eyes looking down at me from the sky. They all sent out some light of their own, brighter than a full moon but far dimmer than the actual sun. I could look up at them and see them moving around, their pupils dilating and constricting as each eye focused on something new. They stayed in constant motion and there were thousands of them, covering the sky with white sclera, gray-purple, and green irises, and constantly flicking pupils as far as my eye could see. 
Those are the eyes of God, a voice behind me said. I turned and saw a beautiful woman there holding out her hands towards me. She had green eyes that shone like emeralds and a sweet, melodic voice that instantly calmed me. You're in heaven. You did it, you beautiful child. She came over and put a hand to my cheek. It burned with her touch, sending waves of happiness throughout my body. As I looked closer at her, I realized that she had on platinum armor and a scabbard with an obsidian sword handle sticking out of the top. Tiny diamonds and emeralds decorated both the scabbard and the handle. This isn't like I imagined heaven to be. I said looking at the trees all around us. They were covered in silver and gold, rising up hundreds of feet into the sky. They stood like skyscrapers, swaying slightly to and fro, as the tropical breeze blew the smell of fruits and ocean through the air. At the top, I saw what looked like people moving around, flying even, but they were so high up that I could barely make them out, even when I squinted. Well, the truth is, she said, her smile widening from ear to ear, showing dozens of sharpened, blood-soaked teeth, her voice deepening and turning into a hissing gurgle. God destroyed himself to make this world and your world and everything in between. She brought her other hand up and now the waves of pleasure that I had felt were replaced with burning pain as she scratched me with huge talons that had suddenly exploded out of her fingers. Her skin began to blacken, but the eyes stayed green, expanding into circles of luminous, viridescent light between folds of black, rotted skin. Massive black wings unfurled behind her, squirming with millions of bugs that constantly fell to the ground, writhing as they tried to return home. The smell of the wings made me gag, reminding me of a combination of burning rubber and rotting roadkill. I screamed, clutching my cheek and feeling blood running down it in rivulets. I turned, running away from this monster as quickly as I could. The eyes above me seemed to move faster as if they had been agitated. At that moment, four people rushed from the forest, waving swords and crossbows. They barely seemed to notice me, focusing entirely on the female shapeshifter behind me. She hissed at them like a snake, sending her long forked tongue flicking out of her mouth and pulling her glowing sword from its scabbard. With a battle cry that made my ears ring, she rushed forward, slicing off the head of the man in front. I saw it fly across the air in slow motion, the man's body falling to its knees. He still had a look of surprise in his eyes when his head had landed a few feet to the left of his body on the tropical white sands of the ground. The others wasted no time using the female's distraction with the front sword-wielding man to attack her ferociously. One shot her directly in the neck with a crossbow, the bolt piercing through and reminding me ludicrously of the bolts on the neck of Frankenstein's monster. She screamed with rage and pain as another rushed her from the left, swinging a massive broadsword at her jaw. Time seemed to slow down as the sword connected, cutting through the skin of the monster easily. As it penetrated deeper, a sickly green light began to shoot out of the wound, and by the time he had completed his blow, 
The light was so blinding that I could no longer look. We have to go. A woman screamed, pointing up to the tops of the massive trees. Looking up, I saw dozens of flying specks, looking like an agitated hornet's nest, as they regrouped and began to approach. As I squinted my eyes, I realized that there were more of the monstrosities coming to aid of the one this group of humans had just killed. I doubted whether they would be able to help her. As one glance at her body showed me, her head hung on by only the spine and the associated ligaments and flesh in the back of her neck. She didn't move anymore and the sickening green light had all but evaporated. The bugs still swarmed, however, and voraciously began to move from the wings to the rest of the body. The woman grabbed my arm, forcing me to run into the forest with her. The rest of the group was already ahead of us. I heard the shrill battle cry of the flying monsters landing behind us, but the woods were going thicker and the constant sharp turns of the leading members of our group would make it harder to find us. After a couple of minutes of running, the shrieking and screaming falling further and further behind us, the man in front had stopped suddenly. He opened up a camouflaged tunnel pushing aside some of the silver leaves that covered the top of it. The rest of the group jumped down, and then the man gestured for me to jump down as well. The fall was only a few feet, and I realized that there were torches burning in a cramped tunnel. I walked forward, hearing the man close the door and land just behind me, pushing me forward. We quickly came to a round room with a massive long table down the middle of it. Dozens of swords, crossbows, daggers, and tridents covered it, all seeming to glow with their own soft and silver light. At the nearest end, the table was cleared and chairs were set up around a steaming pot. A chubby man ladled out bowls of delicious smelling stew, smelling of mint, rosemary, potatoes, and beef. He motioned for us to come sit down and eat. I hadn't realized it until then, but I was absolutely ravenous. They all introduced themselves and we sat down to eat. They poured delicious smelling wines from crystal pitchers, and I ate the beef stew and drank red wine as they told me everything. This is heaven, the chubby man said, sitting down on the bench across from me and pouring himself a glass of the wine. Well... Or at least it used to be. It isn't heaven like most people think of it anymore. Remember, I don't know all of this absolutely, but I've heard most of it from the angels and others who have been here a long time. So at least most of it is true. You mean that shape-shifting monster? I began and he nodded. Oh, those are the angels. They become rabid and evil over the last few billion of years. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Nearly 14 billion years ago, God destroyed himself to create the universe. He cut himself open and let eternal amounts of mass, energy, and consciousness pour out of his body, an action which became known as the Big Bang. All of this matter had nowhere to go within of God's body, so, it created our universe instead. Now, God dying isn't like you or me dying, 
You understand that. God dies very, very slow. It's like he's been bleeding out this entire time. But now, he is truly close to death. In our universe's time, maybe another thousand years at most, and he will be gone. Once he goes, the entire universe that we've come to know, well, it'll go too. It will instantly turn into blackness once the light of his consciousness no longer lights these stars and worlds of our universe. These angels here, they got an idea that if they fed the human souls in heaven to God's mouth, that he would live a slightly longer. And well, it seems to be working. Every time that they feed him a few thousand souls, he seems to heal slightly. But he's still dying. At most, they might delay the end by a few centuries. But even that seems doubtful. The man shook his face, his jowls shaking slightly. You can't really die in heaven. And even if you get your head cut off, it'll grow on back in a couple of hours. But if they feed you to God's mouth, then you do in essence die. Your consciousness gets digested by God. It gets fed throughout his body, dissipating into the eternity within him. Where is God's mouth? I asked. And all the people in the room paused and looked at each other. A sour expression showed on their faces. It is at the end of heaven. The chubby man said, his eyes downcast. It is a horrible thing to behold. Trillions of gnashing teeth. Endless insects infesting it and screaming in unison. Since his body began to fall apart, the insects of heaven have really begun to consume his flesh. I think that it's driving God insane. A lot of the terrible things in our world might be arising from his insanity and dying. But really, that is just speculation. I don't know that for sure. At that moment, I heard a loud crash outside. Shouts and running from above us made everybody deathly silent. And then the hidden trap door leading down here was flung open and the angels began pouring down the opening, carrying glowing swords and crossbows. They instantly attacked, dozens more coming from behind them. They slashed at the chef. He absurdly raised his wine glass in front of him, as if that would stop the sword flying down towards his head. But instead it just cleaved his face in two when he fell backwards. Within seconds, everybody except for me was moaning and dead or dying on the ground. I instinctively picked up my wooden bowl, spilling stew all over myself on the floor. The angels began to pull up the bodies of the others and then approached me, their dead black eyes staring daggers at me as I backed against the dirt wall of the hidden shelter. Just as they had all surrounded me, and one was raising his sword to cut me open, I began hearing sounds that didn't fit. Clear. Again. He's waking up. As the sword came down towards my face, I suddenly opened my eyes, my other eyes, feeling the cold, damp pavement beneath my body. I looked around and saw myself surrounded by paramedics, 
a Lifestar helicopter loudly descending a hundred feet further down the road. I saw the woman who had run out in front of my car in the back of an ambulance. I looked down and saw the wooden bowl in my hand still, cleaved in two by a sword. Remnants of herbs and sauce still clinging to the inside of it. And then I closed my eyes and fell back asleep. The doctors at the hospital told me that I had been clinically dead for five minutes. Apparently the woman that I had almost hit was the latest victim of a serial killer. She had escaped from him and ran blindly into the road out of mortal terror. I didn't blame her in the least and was simply glad that I hadn't hit her. I still have the wooden bowl that I brought back with me and the slices of my cheek from that thing I encountered. Once I get out of here, I want to send the remnants of the bowl to a scientific institution to see what it is truly made out of. I have a feeling that it's not a kind of wood that anyone on earth has ever seen before. The vision of heaven that I had received was the most disturbing thing of the entire experience. It truly changed my life and not for the better. I wasn't afraid of dying before, but I certainly am now. I worked at a mine in northern Alaska. Terror waited underground. Written by Doomed Geek. I had spent my life drifting from one bad situation to another. I was broke most of the time and whenever I had money, I blew it on stupid things. And then I ended up in jail for six months. The prison was close to Alaska and when I got out, I hitched a ride north as soon as I could. I had no destination in mind, just a way. I had read somewhere once that no matter how far you run, you can never escape yourself. And that was me running and not escaping. 30 years old and in a bar at a truck stop in the middle of nowhere, spending the last of my money on a beer. As I tried to make the beer last, I became aware of somebody looking at me. He was a shady looking man in his 50s. A scar ran down one of his cheeks. You got a problem? I asked him. I was 5 foot 3 tall and wiry, but I was quick and knew my way around a brawl. No problem, friend. He replied and wandered over to sit next to me. I'm looking for men to work at a mine, that's all. He continued in a quieter voice. And you look like you might be suitable for one of the roles that I have in mind. I had never been down a mine in my life, but why not, I thought. I could do it until I had a few dollars in my pocket. Enough to move on again. I might be interested, I said. He smiled at this. His teeth were discolored and cracked. There's good money in it, cash in hand and no taxes to pay. And food and board and a ride out to the mine are provided free of charge. Me and another fellow that I've just recruited are heading out soon. So what do you say? I told him that I was in. We shook hands and he introduced himself as Billy T. Patterson. I gave him a false name. It had been years since I had used my own. We left the bar. It was bitterly cold outside and I hoped the car that we were heading for had heating. 
Patterson climbed into the driver's seat. The passenger seat was littered with empty fast food cartons, crushed cola cans and candy wrappers. The seat cover where I could see it looked as sticky as the floor of a seedy nightclub, so I opened the door to the back seat. It was a mess as well. Drill bits, wires, a can of gasoline batteries, an oxygen tank and mask marked hospital property, not to be taken off the premises, and a pair of horribly sharp looking pickaxes were all crammed chaotically in there. I managed to find a space to squeeze into despite this. There was already another man in the seat next to me. He was tall and his knees were pressed up against his chest. He must not have felt too comfortable because he was fast asleep and snoring loudly. A hand-rolled cigarette hung precariously from his mouth. I figured he was a chain smoker who would light up the moment that he woke. The engine started up. The tall fellow snored on, and we pulled away from the stop and headed off down the road. There was no heater, it turned out, and to add insult to injury, the window next to me would not close properly, so the miles passed by slowly and I was left shivering and regretting another lousy decision. I waited for us to pass another truck stop or town so I could tell Patterson to pull over. I would inform him that I wouldn't be working for him after all. No hard feelings. But there was nothing. Just a bleak countryside everywhere that I looked. After six soul-destroying hours on the road, the car turned onto a dirt track that weaved through a forest. The car began to rattle and shake. One of the pickaxes fell over, almost stabbing me in the leg. Hey, careful, I shouted out. If Patterson heard me, he paid me no attention. By my side, the tall fellow somehow continued to snore. And then finally, we came to a halt. There was a strong smell of gasoline by now as well, and I was convinced that the top had come off the can. I jumped out of the car quickly. I didn't want to be in it when the tall fellow woke and lit up. We had stopped in a clearing in the forest. There were half a dozen or so tents pitched close together. A group of men were gathered around a fire. They looked like they had had hard lives and none of them were speaking. They were just staring into the flames. One of them had noticed our arrival. He came over and said to Patterson, About time. We've been sitting around all day and while we're sitting, we're not earning. The boys are not happy. Ah, calm your horses, Patterson replied. We've got everything we need now and can open up the mine this evening and start making our fortunes. The man who had been complaining had muttered, We had better, and returned to the fire. He ignored me and the tall fellow who had come round and was emerging from the car yawning. The tip of the cigarette hanging from his mouth glowed in the falling light. When is dinner served? He drawled. Patterson laughed at this and then hollered out. Old timer, the boys are ready for their stew. A figure emerged from the tangle of tents. 
He was even skinnier than me and had long gray hair that hung over his shoulders. He wore a t-shirt with the logo for a heavy metal band on it. It looked like it had last been washed in the 1970s. His bony hands were clasped around the handle of a trolley that was just about big enough for its load, a cast iron pot. He pushed it toward the men around the fire, who rubbed their bellies and smiled. I did the same. I was famished and the smell drifting from the pot was incredible. The men crowded around the pot. I had no idea if there was a pecking order, whether as the new arrival I was meant to wait, and I did not care. I pushed my way into the melee. One problem of being less than average height is that sometimes, say standing on a packed subway on a hot day, my face is at the armpit height of taller men. My senses are attacked by whatever cheap deodorant they had sprayed on that morning, or even worse, by stale sweat. All the men around the pot were much taller than me. On the plus side, there was not a trace of cheap deodorant. On the other, they reeked of unwashed flesh. The smells from the stew were overwhelmed, but I wasn't going to back off. The old-timer was handing out plates and spoons, none of which looked like they had been cleaned in recent memory either. I grabbed one of each, and the ladle poking out of the stew and got myself a sizable portion. And then I went to find a corner where the only thing I could smell was meat and potatoes while I ate my fill. I could have happily curled up by the fire and gone to sleep after this. But Patterson was shouting instructions at the rest of the men. They were carrying and dragging equipment past the tents with grim, determined expressions on their faces. I got to my feet reluctantly. It looked like it was time to go to work. A few minutes' walk beyond the encampment, a generator was being started, with a good deal of cussing involved. Eventually, it spluttered into life. Cables from it led into an opening in the ground, and I could see that some of the men were climbing down into this as well. Equipment passed from hand to hand, followed. I was in no rush to see where they were heading, and nobody was barking orders at me so I was fine kicking my heels for as long as I could. I heard a sound behind me and I turned. It was the old timer. He observed the activity in front of us silently for a moment and then shook his head and sat in a raspy voice. You're all dead men. I had no idea what he meant by that. He noticed my puzzled expression and fixed me with his bloodshot eyes. This here mine is cursed. He said, it's not been worked in in over a hundred years now, or so the stories go. Not since the last fools tried to dig for the precious minerals that it is meant to hold. At one terrible night they all disappeared, apart from one poor haunted soul who later died in an asylum. Raving about the screams of his fellow miners in the darkness. No way, I said. That's just some campfire tale, probably started by someone who wanted to keep chancers away from this claim. The old timer made a sour face and said, If that's what you choose to believe, 
then that's your own business. I'm just here to earn a few dollars to see me through to another spring. And with that, he walked slowly away. I shivered and told myself that it was because of the coldness of the night that had now descended. I believed the world was cruel, and a hard place that kicked a man when he was down and then laughed in his face, but I didn't believe in curses. I was brooding on this when Patterson appeared. You, he said to me, are you ready to take the first step towards being a very wealthy man? I grinned and nodded. He patted me on the back and said, Grand, then follow me. As we strode towards the opening, he told me why he had hired me and what he wanted me to do to earn my share of the hall. This mine was dug a long time ago and any maps that may have charted it have long since been lost. I want you to go down the narrow tunnels which branch off from the main chamber and see what state that they're in and where they lead, so I can decide where we should focus our efforts. I was not happy at the job that he wanted me to do or the fact that I had been chosen for it because of my size. But the imaginary dollar signs flashing in front of my eyes made me follow him down into the opening. It led via a rickety wooden ladder to a large underground chamber that was filled with a headache-inducing glow from electric lights powered by the generator. The tunnels that Patterson had told me about headed out from all sides of the chamber. They were extremely narrow and shrouded in darkness. I stood there, my guts tightening with nerves. The prospect of heading down any of them made me feel sick. I was about to tell Patterson that he could forget about it, when one of the other men said, Hey, what's wrong, tunnel rat? You scared? I glared at him and it was the tall fellow from the car. I did not care how big he was and no one talked to me like that. I approached him and spoke real slow and real clear to him. Let's get something straight. You ever call me Tunnel Rat again and I will cause you a world of pain. Do you understand? He wouldn't look me in the eye so I knew that he did. As for his accusation that I was scared, there was only one response to that which my pride would allow. I turned to Patterson and asked, Which tunnel do you want me to go down first? He smiled and pointed at one of the openings, and then gave me a torch affixed to a headband. I put it on and set off down the tunnel into the unknown. I crawled on my hands and knees. There was not space to do anything else in the cramped tunnel. The earth beneath my bare hands felt hard and raw. Silence surrounded me. I could make out a swath of the tunnel for a couple of feet in front of me, thanks to the weak light from the head torch. But beyond that, I had no idea what lay ahead. I crawled on and began to wonder when was the last time someone had made their way down this tunnel. The old-timer's story of disappeared men and screams in the darkness came back to me. It was absolute nonsense, I told myself and I kept going. I found it impossible to keep track of time, but it felt like I had been down there for an age when, at last, the tunnel came to an end. Where it did, it widened out, 
and it looked to me like the earth had been scraped away. Maybe there had been mine in here once a long time ago. I did not know, and I could not see what else I could do, apart from head back and report what I had seen. I maneuvered my body around so that I was facing forwards for the return crawl. I had only just set off when my torch had flickered and failed. I cursed, slammed my hand against it. This made no difference. The blasted thing was broken and I had no choice but to continue in total darkness. I crawled blindly on. As time passed and the tunnel stretched on and on, ice-cold beads of sweat began to trickle down my face, and I started to panic. I felt like I was in a tomb, underground constricted in darkness and with a silence that was broken only by the sound of my own ragged breathing, like I was in a tomb and buried alive. And then I could hear drilling voices in the distant hum of a generator. Relief flooded my body. It was all going to be fine. The end of the tunnel soon came into sight, and I paused and took a breath. I did not want any of the others to know that I had come close to losing it and then I emerged out into the chamber. The chattering voices and the drilling were no longer welcome. They were all far too loud and the light now hurt my eyes. I rubbed at them and blinked. While I had been gone, the others had been busy enlarging the chamber. Wooden struts propped up newly excavated areas. Despite this, a section of earth fell in. A couple of men started to argue about whose lousy fault that was. Patterson was there but did not intervene. He was too busy taking long drinks from a hip flask. The smell of whiskey mingled with the other odors already down there. I told him what I had seen and about my head torch. He shrugged and said, Life's SOB. Get a new torch and get yourself down that tunnel there. It could run parallel to a larger tunnel. One of the boys is in there now and I'd like the two tunnels to get linked. He tapped the side of his forehead and added, That's what you call joined up thinking. I managed to keep a poker face but I was starting to realize that he had no idea what he was doing. Reluctantly I entered the tunnel that he had pointed out. My replacement torch revealed glimpses of a passageway through the depths that seemed identical to the last one that I had been in. There was one major difference as I made my way down this one though. I could hear the sound of drilling and figured it was the man working in the nearby tunnel. I didn't know whether the drill was malfunctioning, which would have been no surprise considering the ramshackle nature of this operation or if he had hit something harder than the drill bit could cope with. But the sound that he was making by now was a loud rattling attack on my ears. The tunnel that I was in felt like it was shaking from the impact of the drill. So much for sensory deprivation, I thought. More pressingly, I started to worry that the tunnel that I was in might collapse because of the vibrations from the drill. I made an executive decision and started to crawl backwards out of the tunnel. 
I was almost out when the drill fell silent. Moments later, I heard the first scream. It was muffled by the earth, but there was no mistake in what it was. No mistake in the fear that it contained. I re-emerged into the chamber double quick. Patterson was peering into the tunnel the other man was in. He was hollering, What's wrong? And then he muttered an obscenity and reached for his flask. He raised it to his lips, but it had run dry. He threw it across the chamber and then noticed me. Tunnel rat, he said. You get yourself down there and see what that dang idiot had done. Bradley drilled a hole clean through his own foot. I bit down in the urge to tell Patterson to go to Hades for calling me Tunnel Rat, and I entered the tunnel. It was higher and wider than the others that I had been in, but it was still the quickest to scramble along on my hands and knees. I really hoped that I would not find some kind of medical emergency when I arrived. Though, much as I hated to agree with Patterson, I had the feeling the man further down this tunnel would have done himself an injury. A power cord for the drill trailed along the tunnel floor. I lifted my neck to follow its progress, with the beam of my head torch and saw the drill. It was lying on its side. There was no sign of the miner. It was weird, it was like he had disappeared into thin air. Hello, I called out, thinking that he must have wandered further into the tunnel. If he was hurt and maybe in shock, he might not realize that he was heading away from safety. I climbed over the drill and went to track him down. I hadn't gone far when the tunnel split into two much narrower openings. Both were just about big enough for a man to squeeze into, but why would they? I certainly wasn't going to. Gut instinct was telling me that there was something wrong here, and I wanted to get back to the chamber and then out of the mine. I have hotwired Patterson's car before he realized what was happening, and I would be back out on the road, safely away from this nerve-shredding place. I backed out of the tunnel and into the chamber. I needed to keep my calm more than ever. I didn't want Patterson to be alerted to my plan. It didn't help that he was in my face the moment that I got to my feet. Well, what did you find? He demanded. Looking after number one was all I cared about by now, so I replied. He's going to be fine. The drilling kicked up a lot of dust and dirt and he was struggling to breathe, and that's all. I just gotta go back to the surface and get the medical oxygen tank in your car, and then I'll head back down the tunnel. Once he has had a few gulps of good old O2, I'm sure that he will be right as rain. I waited for Patterson to look at me as if I had just told him that I had found marshmallows growing in the tunnel and I was off to heat up some hot chocolate. Instead he grumbled about hiring a bunch of clowns and did not look as if he was going to try and stop me from leaving. He believed me, and in a few minutes I would be on my way. My impulse was to run, but I continued being the king of cool and I moseyed towards the ladder. 
I should have run for my life because before I made it, something emerged out of one of the tunnels. It was dark and slender and looked like some kind of tentacle. Its outer layer was covered in a layer of filaments, and it was clearly the tip of something longer that extended back into the tunnel. The section in open view swayed slightly, almost as if it was seeking something. We had all stood a stock still with shock up to this point, but now the man next to Patterson walked toward the tentacle and said, What the? He got no further. Like a lightning bolt cutting through the sky, the tentacle flashed forwards and coiled itself around the man's waist, and then it whipped him towards the tunnel entrance and pulled him back inside with it into the darkness. We heard him screaming for long seconds after we lost sight of him and then there was only silence. None of us broke the silence. I was too horrified by what had just happened. I guess the others were as well and instinctively. We had all started to move away from the tunnel entrance where the tentacle had appeared. A new movement to our left made us turn. Another tentacle that appeared from another tunnel. Patterson was the first to react. He started to run towards the ladder. The tentacle shot towards him and wrapped itself around him. He began to holler as the tentacle reeled him in, as it drew him down the tunnel. His cries ended moments later. And we soon forgot about him, because yet another tentacle had appeared from another tunnel. It was only a couple of feet away from me. I stared at it as it swayed. I was paralyzed by fear even though I knew in seconds the things would be coiling around me and taking me into the darkness. It continued to sway and continued to drift towards me, but it did not touch me. It passed within inches of my face. And then another of the men fell to his knees and began to sob and beg it to not take him. The tentacle shot towards him, enveloped him, and dragged him off. There was only me and the tall fellow left now. He looked at me and whispered, It can sense movement. If we stay completely still, we might just make it. I acknowledged this with my gaze and we both stood as still as we could as yet another of the aberrations emerged. It swayed and drifted and rose and dipped as it tried to sense its next victim. I held my breath, scared that even the movement in my chest would alert it to my presence, and then it began to withdraw. We were going to survive, I believed, and watched as the retreating tentacle passed right by the tall fellow. And then a bead of sweat ran down the side of his face, and it fell under the filaments of the tentacle. Alerted to his presence, it whipped up towards and encircled him. He struggled and screamed, but it was no use. The tentacle took him. I was alone, doomed. And then something flared inside me, a desperate pride. I wasn't going to go down whimpering and hiding. I was going to hold my head up high. Come on then, I shouted. Do your worst. A tentacle appeared from one of the tunnels, and then others did the same until five tentacles swayed in the air. The story of my life, I muttered to myself. The tentacles turned as one towards me. 
This was it. Suddenly, a voice called out from above. Incoming, he yelled, and liquid streamed down into the chamber. It was boiling hot and I could feel the heat coming off it and see the steam rising as it hit two of the tentacles. They began to thrash about frantically and withdrew quickly into the tunnels, and then a figure jumped down into the chamber. The long gray hair draped over his shoulders and the faded logo of his filthy t-shirt were clear in the electric lights. It was the old timer. He was grinning maniacally and in each hand he held a pickaxe. The remaining tentacles were twitching trying to guess to figure out which way to strike. But the old timer didn't hesitate. He swung both pickaxes at once, their blades severed two tentacles and then moved as one to slice through the final tentacle. The amputated sections fell limply to the floor, as the rest of the wounded tentacles withdrew back into the tunnel. I stared at the old timer with my mouth open. But you're the cook, he shrugged. Hey, not always, he said. Back in the 70s, I was a monster hunter and I still got it. His eyes were gleaming as he spoke. Now, we need to hurry, he went back. I don't know if it's one big freak or a bunch of them out there, but the tentacles are going to be back real soon and we need to get out of here. You go up the ladder first and I'll follow you. I staggered towards the ladder and began to ascend. Adrenaline was pumping through my body. I had survived and soon I would be back on the open road. With the old timer, I would pull over at the first bar that we saw and order a pitcher of beer and raise a glass to the man who had saved my life. I was one rung from the top when I heard the old timer gasp. No, I turned. The dark shapes of these severed sections of the tentacles were no longer just lying there. They were twitching, and now they were wriggling along the ground towards the old timer. He had cut them off, but they weren't dead, and they were out for vengeance. I watched in horror as they slithered around his ankles and crawled up his legs, and then raced for his neck. They wrapped themselves around it and squeezed. His eyes began to bulge. I tore my gaze away. There was nothing that I could do, apart from save myself. I scrambled out of the chamber and ran for the car. Dawn broke, scarlet and fierce, as I sped along the track out of the woods and I was soon on the highway. I had escaped the mine and, like the only survivor last time, the tentacles were disturbed by fortune-seeking fools. I would forever be haunted by the screams of men, as they were taken in a grotesque embrace into a darkness from which there was no escape. Life is scary when you quit your job and literally nobody noticed. Life is scary when you wink at your crush as you pass by your desk only to realize that you have toilet paper stuck to your heel. Life is even scary when it's your first date and you really need to fart. Now we all deal with Sunday scaries, right? That oh crap, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dread feelings that hit you on Sunday evenings when you think about work or school the next day. Or life in general. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. 
Sunday scary CBD gummies were made to defeat the crap life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind. Super moms, students, party animals, regretful drunk texters, and everything in between. Now me personally, I don't relax very well. I've never been someone who can just sit down and chill out. I always feel like I need to be doing something, whether that is work-wise or at home. It's just hard to shut off my brain and chill. While that can be positive in some ways, it also makes me overthink and stress myself out. Sunday Scaries are vitamin-boosted CBD gummies that actually work and they chill me out fast. Look, we all have the right to live scare-free. So whether you need to take the edge off, calm your racing mind, or sleep better, or just chill. Take two CBD gummies every day to keep the scaries away. Let me save you with my 25% discount. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code MrCreeps for your discount. That's sundayscaries.com promo code MrCreeps for 25% off. I'm a criminal on the black market. This new drug is causing horrifying effects. Written by CIA Herb The screaming from my basement kept me up at night. The woman that I had taken and chained down there often wept or yelled until dawn, and I knew that things couldn't continue like this. They were disturbing my sleep, making my life intolerable and that made me furious to the point where my vision turned white with rage every time they woke me up. I would go down there and teach them a lesson any time that happened, but they still continued screaming, and I knew that I would have to find a better way to keep them quiet. I had originally bought a variety of different drugs off the dark web. I also bought medical supplies like plastic tubing as well as machinery to IV them. After a few experiments gone wrong where I accidentally had overdosed a couple of them, I found that I could keep them incapacitated with a very low dosage of a certain cocktail that I had created. But then, my dark web connection had disappeared, likely busted by the DEA or FBI and I knew that I had to find another way. I read about legal drugs and one of them had caught my eye. It was a red and white mushroom by the name of Amnita muscara, commonly called Flyageric, a mushroom that appeared in pop culture references from the Smurfs to Alice in Wonderland to Super Mario Brothers, but one that almost no one realized was psychoactive and totally legal. It had incapacitating effects, often causing out-of-body experiences in catatonic states. Oh, this is perfect, I said to myself smiling and feeling elated. I immediately ordered some Siberian Flygeric and as soon as it came in the next day, I started extracting the active ingredients and diluting them in distilled water for placement in the IV bag. As I went out to check the mail, I saw a mail about my height far away in the forest, running away in a panic from something behind him. Something that appeared to drag itself forward at an amazingly fast speed on its arms, yet it had no legs. But when I turned to look at it directly, they had disappeared into the thick brush. I had no neighbors, the nearest one being over a mile away in the other direction, 
so I wondered who would be out there. I lit a cigarette and stayed on my porch, watching and waiting, but after no more sightings or noises came, I gave up and went back inside. Whistling to myself, I brought the IV bags down to the basement. Three women that I kept there were currently all quiet, likely either asleep or just staring blankly up at the ceiling. They were all chained to the gurneys. I only unchained them when they needed to use the bathroom or eat, but then I would immediately chain them back up again. They were all beautiful, with blue eyes and blonde hair parted in the middle, lithe bodies and very light Irish skin. I walked down the creaking southern stairs, moving next to my nearest victim. I didn't usually bother to learn their names, but this one was a hitchhiker and told me when I had picked her up. She said her name was Allie and that she was a college student. She was beautiful and young. She was sleeping when I started hanging the new IV solution of Flyagerac up to the medical pole next to her bed. As the fluid began to drip through the clear plastic tubing, she woke up. Her deep blue eyes regarded me with hatred for a moment and then she turned away not saying anything. Her face had a look of hopelessness and despair in it that I had seen dozens of times before. Whenever any of my victims near the end of their lives, that kind of vacant hopelessness stare was all that was left on their faces, sometimes accompanied by a tremendous pain and fear, sometimes accompanied by acceptance and peace. Whistling to myself, I began to walk around the room, checking the other two women for infections, making sure their chains were tight and that they were all still alive. I was about to grab the padlock key to unchain them one at a time, letting them use the bathroom and get some food and water quickly so that I could keep them alive for longer. But then something started to happen from underneath Allie's bed. I heard a deep growling sound. Spinning around, I saw that Allie's pupils had expanded to cover her entire iris. Her eyes were staring blankly past me with a thousand yard stare and the room seemed to shimmer and glow around her. Underneath her bed, I saw a face with dozens of glowing white eyes staring out at me from the shadows. I backed up slowly, reaching into my pocket for the switchblade that I always carried on me. It used its front limbs to crawl out, leaving a trail of reeking red behind it and filling the room with the smell of iron and rot. The monstrosity looked like it was rotting from the inside. Its skin fell off in bluish-purple layers. Its mouth was full of blackened teeth embedded in sickly brown gums. But its dozens of eyes were tr what truly caught my attention. They were all blue, just like the eyes of my victims. Some were icy blue like an Alaskan lake, while others were the deep blue of a tropical ocean. To my horror, I could even recognize some of the eyes and of which my previous victims they had belonged to. It dragged itself forward at a tremendous speed using its arms, with exposed muscle and bone showing through the worn, decaying layers of infested skin that covered them. It had no legs but only bleeding stumps that left two thick trails of red behind it on the floor. It had no clothes on but the decaying constant squirming of the bugs and insects in its body gave it a unique covering all in its own. You can flee, it said to me with dozens of overlapping voices. 
but I know you better than you know yourself. You think you're evil, but the true evil is coming that will tear you to pieces. Run. The last word was so loud that the entire cellar shook, sending clouds of dirt falling down from the ceiling, and I turned and ran up the stairs. I heard a rapid scuttling, dragging sound as the monster behind me gave chase. Um, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. I said to myself quickly as I ran right through the cellar door, not even stopping. It slammed against the wall, shutting itself again from the impact as I passed by. I ran out into the kitchen and towards the front door, which I always kept locked with two deadbolts as well as a knob that locked. I was serious about my security, but right now it was working against me. My shaking fingers quickly undid the two deadbolts as I heard the monster break through the cellar door. Jack. It said to me, dragging my name out as it slid on its belly behind me. I had just gotten to the last lock, the turnkey of the doorknob, when I felt it grab my leg. I kicked back as hard as I could, smashing the bottom of my steel toe boot directly into its face through pure lock, and I felt the knob turn suddenly. I flung the door open, but just as I was running through it, I felt myself pulled back by the grasping arms of the eldritch monstrosity behind me. It spun me around to stare into its rotting face. I felt like it could do nothing for a moment but look into those countless eyes. And then with a superhuman speed beyond my vision, it rapidly bit my right thumb off with its blackened teeth. For a moment there was no pain, only shock. I stared down at my spurting hand, the red soaking into my white shirt, and then a fiery burning sensation shot at my arm. Screaming and thrashing, I fell back through the door, kicking with all my might at the thing's eyes and face. But though I made contact over and over, it just started laughing, a demonic and deep sound that rattled the windows and doors of the house. Laying flat out on my back on the porch, I began to scoot backwards as fast as I could while it came towards me. Fumbling in my pockets, I found the key for the deadbolt that I kept on the basement door pulled it out and unthinkingly shoved the piece of metal into the center of its eyes. It made a direct hit into one of them, sending warm, vitreous fluid covered with squirming bugs shooting out onto my left hand. The smell was so pungent and the sensation of the insects so horrifying that I started to gag. But it bought me enough time to push myself up and begin sprinting into the woods. I held my damaged hand with my good one, wrapping the cloth of my shirt around it to try to slow the bleeding. I knew that if it kept spurting like it was, I would begin to lose consciousness from the blood loss, and then that thing would have me. The daylight was growing soft and weak as the sun set, but it was enough to see the brushes and brambles as I ran blindly ahead. After a couple of minutes, I came into a clearing where I saw myself standing in the center of the field. I stopped suddenly looking behind me for the creature, but there was no sign of it. And then I turned back to me and started moving forwards. I saw that he only had one shoe on. What the heck is this? I asked loudly. My doppelganger only smiled at me. 
Uh, we made a huge mistake, Jack, he said. Who are you? I said. I'm you, obviously. Look. He raised his bandaged right hand, the strips of a white shirt wrapped tightly around the dismembered thumb. How is this happening? I felt like I was about to wake up at any moment, as if I were trapped in a nightmare. You didn't do enough research into that drug you gave the young woman, he said to me. Not only did you accidentally kidnap and torture a psychic who has supernatural powers, but then you gave her a drug that causes time loops and out-of-body experiences. Her mind is so powerful that it is disrupting the flow of space and time all around us. You're caught in the same loop now that she is subjected to inside of her nightmare state. I shook my head. That sounds totally impossible, I said. There's no such thing as psychics. Well, before today, he said, we also thought there was no such thing as monsters. Yet didn't you see the one who bit off your thumb? It had the eyes of every girl we've killed. She has recruited their spirits and pieces of their bodies to reform into a vessel for justice. You're being haunted and you don't have much time. You have to listen to me and stop asking questions. I nodded at him and he went on. Your only chance now is to run out the clock. That drug, that fly-in-a-jeric mushroom, only has enough active chemicals in that one bag to keep Allie in a time loop for 20 or 25 hours. Depending on how fast the drug begins to wear off when the IV bag is depleted. If you can survive the entire time, you might be able to make it out of this alive. Her power should start to fade back to normal once the drug is dissipated. He turned looking. Did you hear that? I was about to respond, saying that I didn't hear anything. But then I realized that I did hear something. It sounded almost sub-audible, like the tremors of an earthquake deep underground just out of the reach of human hearing. But as I listened, it grew louder and the ground started to shake. Thousands of black, decomposing hands began to reach out of the ground, sprouting from the forest clearing like rows and rows of corn stalks, and I screamed in terror. I was much closer to the forest than my doppelganger, so I began to back away rapidly. Some of the hands grabbed at my jeans and shoes, and I lost one shoe in the process of escaping. But within a few seconds, I was back under the cover of the trees. My doppelganger wasn't so lucky. He tried fighting, kicking at the nearest hands and pulling a switchblade from his pocket, which he used to begin slicing at the dozens of hands that now grabbed his legs, feet, and torso. I saw black liquid dripping from these slices that he made, but the hands were totally unaffected. They began to return to the earth, dragging him down with them. He shot me one final terrified glance before he disappeared beneath the ground. Found you, a monstrous gurgling said from behind me. I turned around and saw the monster there, one of its eyes deflated and still dripping. Its mouth opened in a grin that stretched across his face like a Glasgow smile. Its cheeks ripping open from one corner of its face to the other as its grin kept widening. Please, leave me alone, I said. 
using my good hand to pull my switchblade out of my pocket. I don't want to hurt you, but I will if I have to. I have no fight with you. The thing laughed, a deep and disturbing sound that echoed through the rapidly darkening forest. You killed me over and over, it said, and now I've come to repay the favor. A life for a life, the ancient said, but your debt is overdue. You have only one life to trade, so I'm going to make this fun for us. You can have a 60 second head start. I turned around and sprinted blindly across the forest until I eventually found an abandoned shack. I took out my phone and I tried calling for help. I called 911 but the only voice that came through was the voice of the monster gurgling and laughing. The internet did work so I began to write up my story. I know that I can't survive for around 20 hours. I've seen myself die already. These things are just toying with me before they finish me off for good. I just wanted the world to know what happened to me though. Maybe I do deserve to die but at least I can give others a warning. Stay away from the magic mushroom. A Wall of Fog Rolled Across North America in 1993 Written by a Perennial Astronaut Document Notes This account arrived in my P.O. Box as a diary. Purple cover with glitter, spiral-bound, rolled on both sides of each page. It seemed like it must have lain face down in water for some time as a majority of the pages leading up to the relevant passages are almost completely illegible. Of those that survived, I would say they contained normal day-to-day -day diary entries. Here's what I had for lunch, the cow kicked over the milk pail again. School sucked, but the boy that I liked looked at me. Some song lyrics and doodles. I haven't the time or the heart to read out the non-relevant passages. It's just some young person's diary, maybe 13 to 15 years old, likely a girl, living on a farm with her small family. The account follows. November 2nd, 1993. Day 1. We heard the sirens today right after breakfast. I never heard Dad swear so loud, but Mom was too busy wiping the oatmeal off of Baby Jay's face and hauling him out of his high chair to tisk-tisk him. Everything we needed was already down in the old cold cellar. I had helped mom make beef tallow emergency candles, and dad to clear spaces down there for us to live and sleep. And dad cooked up some flour and soot paint to cover the two little windows that we had down there, before piling field stones against them. He filled in any chinks in the doorframe with painty rags and nailed spare lumber over the gaps. Mom brought down all the spare bedding that we had to make up some beds. It would be rough without mattresses, she said, but I think that we had enough old duvets to make it pretty cozy. I carefully stacked our canned food, store-bought and homemade, on one side of the cellar while Dad dug us a toilet in a little back room. 
He dug it after covering the window in there with paint and rocks, so that he had to dig by the light of one of Mom's tallow candles, making the whole cellar smell beefy. The cellar actually looked pretty nice after we had finished with it. We had time to make it more homey and to fill any gaps in the weeks before the fog wall would hit so. We hung a nice tablecloth on one side and made a dinner table with an old door from the lumber pile. I got some stuffed animals down from my closet upstairs and lined our sleeping spot with them too. Baby Jay got a wash basin as a bed and I painted flowers on the sides with the rest of Dad's black paint. They didn't look very good, but Mom says it was the thought that counted. So, the hurricane siren went off and Dad swore and Mom got Baby Jay up out of his high chair to get him downstairs. I asked Mom if I could go and get my diary. I had to ask her twice, actually, with how fussy Baby Jay had gotten. Anyway, she said, yeah, but... Hurry up, for God's sake. Dad had snapped on the radio and tuned it to 95.5 FM to see what was going on. I paused a little when he did, but Mom shooed me up the stairs to grab you, Diary, before I could hear more than a few excited-sounding words. I checked my window after grabbing you, and I could see the fog wall from where I was on the second floor. It didn't really look special except that it stretched from one side of the horizon to the other in one gray, smudgy line, like looking at a far-off rainstorm. I saw Dad from the window, too. He was jogging to the barn to fill the animal troughs with as much food and as water as we had, and to turn on their nightlight. He spent a lot of time last week charging some old car batteries and hooking them up to a light bulb so the animals wouldn't go crazy in the dark. I'm really glad that he did. Twelve days in darkness sounds like a nightmare. I gave the fog wall one last long look. It was such a nothing. Before all the stores had closed, I heard some customers and salesfolk talking big about how it was some big overblown hoax and that they would stay upside when or if it came. But looking at the wall, I shivered a bit. I hope those people changed their minds. Heck, I heard that you could survive the wall just by hanging your thickest blankets against the windows and hiding in the closet. No lights allowed. And I really hope that's true. I really hope they changed their minds. We got downstairs quick. Once Dad had locked the door, we all sat quiet for a little while, listening to the radio. Big Steve was going through all the preparations that we should have done in the last weekend. We all listened anxiously. But we had prepared exactly as he and the government had said, and maybe a little bit more. Baby Jay had fallen asleep in my lap, but after maybe half an hour, he woke up and he got scared of the dark. Mom started singing and bouncing him on her knee while me and Dad started looking through board games to play. We pointed one of the two wind-up emergency flashlights against a jar of water to make a better board gaming light, and we played a few games of Scrabble. The wall hit just before dinner. We're pretty much going to have to eat cold canned stuff because Mom says the smoke from a gas grill or even more than one candle at a time will get dangerous really quick. I was finishing opening a can of creamed corn, when Big Steve on the radio started sounding excited. 
and dad had told me that the radio station was about parallel to us so when they went into the wall we would be really soon after we had gone out a few weeks ago to paper the whole station up big steve had hosted a big hot dog grill to get the town out to help him make it all sight safe dad helped sludge down a man-sized hole in one wall so big steve could get to the emergency generator shed without having to go outside anyway big steve said the security camera on the east side had just passed into the wall he said that it got really staticky and that we might get some interruptions while the rest of the town went in it did get staticky for a few minutes and then it went straight into white noise for a few more but that's when we heard the fog wall rolling at and over us. Me and baby Jay sat in the bedding while mom and dad waited tensely with our stash of cardboard and tape. We turned out all the lights and I assumed they were looking around everywhere while the wall rolled over us to see if any last minute light was coming in. Soon we heard this low sucking sound from upside, getting closer and closer until it was right over us. It was pretty scary at first, almost like a few years ago when we had a tornado nearly pass over us and we had to spend the night down here. It got really quiet after that. And then the DJ came back on the radio, a little more staticky but not too bad. He was broadcasting to the whole town and he said, the town and the fog vortex and we were all the big family now and here's a tune to help keep us cheerful while we braved this funny little weather phenomenon. He sounded really happy. He sounded like, how do you do before you go on stage? Nervous, but you don't want people to know that you're kind of freaking out. Mom and dad eventually turned the lights back on when they were sure that no light from outside was coming in. And we ate dinner to Big Steve playing music on the radio. He ate dinner live in the air too. He said that he would keep broadcasting as long as he could through the 12 days that we would be in the wall. After, we all took turns winding the radio and our flashlights. Now mom and dad are sitting and holding hands and listening to the radio while I write in you. I'm gonna go to bed soon, but I think I'll be awake for a long time listening to the fog. Day 2 Mom brought an alarm clock down so we wouldn't lose track of time. She said it to ring at 8am every day and we're keeping calm by making lines and a support beam with a piece of chalk. Me and hers thought that it was a little funny when we set it up, like we were all doing time in jail. The toilet smells like how I bet a jail toilet smells. It's already making it pretty gross down here but dad made some extra ventilation ahead of time so he says that it shouldn't get too bad, or at least it won't get dangerous. Did you know that a smelly toilet could kill you? Like how too many candles or a gas leak can kill you, I guess. I kept my head leaning towards one of the ventilation tubes while I used the can and I think I got a breath of air from above but I'm not so sure. I didn't want to breathe too deeply. The government said the air wasn't what was so dangerous about the fog wall. It was just normal air. Other than that, today was pretty boring. We sat around the light and read or played board games, 
We nabbed one we felt like it and we would listen to the radio. The music is nice and Big Steve is as cheerful as ever. Baby Jay isn't allowed on the dirt floor but we let him play around on the bed. I'm glad that he likes all my stuffed animals. Mom and Dad opened a bottle of wine and let me have a little bit too. I think it made my head feel light but I don't like the taste. It's too bitter. They cheered up a little though so the evening was more fun and they actually got to laughing while we played Trivial Pursuit. I thought about the cows and the chickens in the barn. I hope their light was still on. Day two and a half. I'm creeped out. It's night I guess, at least it's a few hours after we all decided to go to bed, but I'm the only one awake. I had to get up to use the toilet. It's cold tonight though and my stomach was hurting a bit so. I took the radio into the bathroom and turned it on really low while I sat on the toilet. It's just a bucket with the bottom cut out and some planks across it, set across the hole that dad had dug. We have another bucket of spare dirt beside us to scoop into the toilet when we were done to keep the smell down. I had the radio on super low and I pressed to one ear while I sat. Some music was on for a while but soon Big Steve comes back on air but he's sounding a little bit different, quieter. Not like I have the volume down quieter, but like he's almost whispering into the microphone quieter. He says, Welcome back, ladies and gents. Welcome back to the town in the fog wall. We got a new one here for you tonight. I got up to take a trip down to the little boy's room. Thank God for septic tanks. Gonna get an amen. And I took a peek at our security cameras while I did as I wanted to do. But there isn't much to look at out there in that fog wall most of the time. Y'all ain't missing much, it's fog. But I'll be kidding if I didn't catch a little bit of movement out there in the west parking lot. We got a little LED light hooked up out there. Not much of a power draw and it's good to have a light on in the night in case any raccoons feel like ransacking the place. But tonight, I did not see a raccoon. I saw. Big Steve trailed off there for a sec. Well, family, I don't know quite what I saw. It was big, but not like an elephant big. Like it wasn't solid or thick. Kind of looked like a hairball blew across the camera lens, truth be told. And that might have been very well what it was. All fuzzy and out of focus and looking to be carried on a breeze from out yonder. He paused again. I wish Sunday Sue decided to stay up here so I could get a second opinion. But she drove out on Monday to keep an eye on her family. Sunday Sue, if you're out there, I hope that you're doing fine and well. I'm good up here, but an old man does miss his co-host. He chuckled. Okay, folks, sorry to creep you out in the middle of the night. As a penitence, I'll drag out some carpenters to keep us in the long hours, and I'll get back to some good old-fashioned shut-eye. Guitar music started playing. I stayed on the toilet until my butt hurt, but it seemed like Big Steve really did go to bed. So I went back to bed too. But I kept the radio on close to my ear as I lay there. 
I tried to listen above me for sounds in the fog and I wrote in this diary. Day 4 I was still feeling a little sick yesterday so I mostly stayed in the bed and read some books. Mom and Dad thought the wine might have upset my stomach. I think the toilet smell is getting to me. It smells so gross that I try to eat and drink less so I don't have to use it. And Dad had hung air fresheners after digging the toilet hole but they don't do much unless you hold them against your nose. I'm breathing through my mouth mostly now and luckily I have a ventilation pipe near my side of the bed. I think that I can smell fresh air through it, cool and a little damp. I felt better today so mom sat me down with my math textbook and we worked on some problems. She's really good at trigonometry but I can't stand it. I can get it when it's being explained to me. Everything that she says makes sense when she goes through all of the steps. But once she hands me a new equation and asks me to solve it, it all flies away. She wants me to go to university but I don't even know what I want to study. I like English, but she says that if I want to get an English major, I might as well get into trades and be a plumber or something instead. If I was a plumber, maybe I could figure out a better toilet. In day four and a half, I can't sleep. Sounds above us. We started hearing it as we were getting ready for bed. Mom and me were shaking up the bed liners when dad had shushed us. He was standing near the door with his head cocked upwards. He looked whiter than the sheets. We stopped and listened too. First, there was nothing. Every once in a while for the past four days, we would hear the familiar sound of cows lowing from the barn. They had gone quiet too like they were listening with us. And then I heard it. A sound like someone sweeping the floor with a straw broom coming out of the fog very slowly towards our hiding place. The radio was already on quiet, but Mom dropped her corner of the blanket that we were holding and snapped the radio off. We let absolute silence fill the pantry, as whatever it was passed over us. When it groaned, I almost screamed out loud. I actually clapped both hands over my mouth. Mom and Dad didn't so much as look at me. Baby Jay kept sleeping, thank God. The groan warbled on above us, louder and louder, but still not much above a whisper, following the side of the house. Eventually, it peaked right above us. Mom threw her hand out to me and I gripped it silently. I can't remember the last time that I held her hand. Baby Jay, though, shifted in his wash base in bed and started fussing. Mom let me go immediately to pick him up and started rocking him gently, sparing a few terrified glances up as she did. I think I heard the barest pause and these strange sweeping footsteps above us, but the groan remained unbroken. It was finally moving away. Baby Jay had fallen back asleep. We all stood like that for minutes after, all staring at the ceiling. After we were certain that it was gone, we shared a silent group hug. 
and then we all went to bed and all lay in the quiet with the radio turned off. They came back though, or more moved through. Mom and Dad and Baby Jay are asleep again, and I'm up listening to what sounds like a whole herd of brooms walking along above us, every once in a while letting out one of those terrible drawn-out moans. It's so quiet, but it's there. I tried to hold it, but eventually I had to get up and pee. I took the radio and turned it on so quiet that for a few moments I thought that it was still muted. I sat on the can and I listened. And then Big Steve came on whispering and I realized that he must have been listening too. There goes another one. He breathed just above the faint static. Folks, I think we're in a herd of these things. Now hold on one second. There was the sound of a chair shifting. And then Big Steve's voice came from further away in a stage whisper. That isn't the spookiest thing I've ever seen. A very long pause, the sound of him sitting down again. Sorry folks, the cameras are on the outside of my booth and I gotta really stretch my mic cord to be able to see him. And that's still from ten feet away. Kinda wish that I hadn't gotten up to take a closer look because they are capital C creepy. You can hear him sipping water and clearing his throat. Another pause and then he comes back even quieter. They just drift, really. Their, their feet barely touch the ground. They must be so light. National TV says they do something to the security tapes and sure enough, after seeing that first one the other night, I checked the tape and it was all messed up and staticky and blue screen. Flicker is the whole shebang. Like I had run it through the wash with my biggest electromagnets. But the live feed still comes in pretty good. For now at least. I think I sat on the toilet for another half an hour, barely noticing the stink and just listening to Big Steve describe the things moving around above us. They shifted and groaned as he thought out loud about where the fog wall came from and what these strange creatures moving within it were. I had seen plenty of TV show hosts and experts talk about this. Some people said aliens. More said that they were people who got changed when they looked into the fog. The programs usually had a drawing from a survivor who had seen one through a security camera like Big Steve. It always looked like a tangled mat of yarn, usually with a big question mark pasted over it by the TV station. They said the things did never try to break in or anything, but I knew that Dad had brought down his shotgun and kept it tucked under the pile of quilts that we used as a mattress on the side. When I finally got up and finished my business, my legs were all pins and needles. I tried to shake feeling back into them while taking a few deep breaths of the fresh air, streaming in from the ventilation pipe beside the can. The way the cellar worked had the pipe coming out at above head level for me, so I could just stand and let the air wash over me, cool and damp. The pins and needles faded and I closed my eyes for a second, thinking about being back up there in broad daylight and crisp near frigid November air. 
I stopped breathing when a brushing footstep in the ground echoed from what sounded like within the pipe. The sound came in so clearly that it was like it was standing outside with them. I felt my hands and gripped the radio tightly. The groan got louder. It got louder and closer, like whatever it was was making it was pushing its head down the pipe. I finally managed to move a few steps back, but I was staring at the end of the pipe and I couldn't look away. Deep in its mouth, I thought that I saw the faintest pulse of light. It seemed to beat steadily for a few moments, before fading to nothing along with the ground. A pause and then the sound of sweeping footsteps moving away. I stood with my back against the rough stone wall that separated the toilet from the main room. I stared into the now pitch black pipe and started to shiver all over her. I went back to bed and I lay with my flashlight and radio on, and I wrote in my diary. The light is just about out now. I don't want to make any noise by winding it. The radio's already dead. I'll try to sleep. Day 5 Mom and Dad heard Big Steve talking about the things in the fog today. He repeated his story about them sweeping in during the night again and again and they seemed to get more and more upset every time that he did. Big Steve though he sounded more and more, I don't know, comfortable every time he told the story. I decided not to tell mom and dad about what I thought that I saw last night. I think that I was just really creeped out by the sounds on the radio. There's no light inside the pipe today. I checked and we hadn't heard anything move above since last night. The cows are even back to mooing every so often. I hope they're still doing well. They sound pretty fine to me. More board games, more napping, more studying. We're doing biology today and learning about photosynthesis. I thought that I had a pretty good idea of how it worked, but it turns out. There's a whole dark reaction part of it that even mom has to take time to read to herself to understand. She was a geologist before having me and Mary and dad, though so at least she can understand a lot of the chemistry stuff. It's weird. I didn't know much about what mom was doing before she had me. She never really talked about it before, but during a homework break she told me a few stories about her field work and the Yukon before she had married dad. It's kind of nice. Maybe after all this, we'll be a little bit closer. Day 6 Halfway done. It's been so boring. No light from the pipe today. Didn't hear anything last night. It still smells here. Dad joked that once we were out of here, we're going to burn all the clothes and linens out back because the smell has gotten into them so much. We're getting really restless, so we played charades all afternoon. To try to tire us out and mom made a special dessert for after dinner. It was just cherry pie filling with crushed graham crackers on top. But it was really good anyway. I like how you get a burst of juice when you bite into a cherry. We've been eating straight out of cans, passing it around with a spoon and taking bites because we can't really clean our dishes. We keep the old cans and jars in a garbage bag in the bathroom, so at least the smell is kept all in one spot. We tried lighting a candle near the main room's ventilation pipe, 
to force a draft, but I don't think it made a difference. Tomorrow we'll be over the hump and there will only be five days left. Days six and a half. Still no light from the pipe and no sounds above us. Big Steve is back on now. He's been counting how many moved past his east facing camera. So far he's at 51 tonight. Day seven. Another boring day. I know we're on the downslope, but it sucks so bad down here. I don't know what I'll do first when I get back upside. Probably check on the animals with Dad. We'll open the doors and let them get any little last bit of grass from the fields. I'm gonna kiss each cow in the nose and hug each chicken. None of the cows need milking, thank goodness. Though there will probably be some eggs that are on their way to becoming baby chicks. They have to stay in their eggs for longer than us. Poor little guys. I hope Dad lets us keep them. Day seven and a half. They're moving above us again. It's very late and I don't know how mom and dad can stay asleep through the moans and footsteps. It's stupid that I have to keep getting up to pee. I'm trying to stay under the covers for as long as I can, but I gotta go. I'll be back, taking the radio. There's light inside the pipe again. I was doing my usual thing and went to get my breath of fresh air when I saw it. I covered it up with my sweater straight away. Big Steve was on the radio and I listened while I watched the pipe. And to those just tuning in, I made um, some minor miscalculations with the gas when we were setting up the place. I'm keeping everything but the radio equipment off. I've redone the arithmetic and we should have enough to get us through to the last day if I take nights off. But for this evening, I'm feeling mighty lonely so we're going to stay on. I can't see anything outside of course with these security cameras off, but I think I've heard some of them passed when I was down taking a leak. Or using the facilities. Nothing comes through these soundproofing up here in the booth, of course. He stopped to clear his throat. The sound of shuffling papers and then gruffly. How about some music? He put on one of my favorites, Stargazing by Pondworks. It's a low and slow one. There's some violin and it always makes me kind of sad. Afterwards, it wound down into silence and only after a while did Big Steve come back on, speaking quietly. Sometimes they'll touch each other, just barely brushing fingertips like. And when they do, their movement will kind of sync up and they'll sway together. It's hypnotizing like watching wind pass over a sea of weed. Another long pause and another song played. I watched the pipe, another song, and then Steve came back on again. Alright folks, I think that'll wrap it up for tonight. I'll power down for a few hours and see you bright and early tomorrow morning for some more music. Big Steve signing off. Day 8 Big Steve barely came on the radio to speak today. It was mostly music. I don't think mom and dad noticed. They didn't notice when I started taking longer and longer bathroom breaks either. More biology lessons. Haven't heard the cows in a while. Day 9 Big Steve wasn't on the radio today. No music, just static. 
Mom and Dad seemed worried. Very quiet in the shelter, kept checking pipe. Day nine and a half. He's doing nights. We kept the radio on low all evening and after dinner he finally comes on, cheerful as can be. Good morning, he boomed. His intro sound effects played, a horse whiny, a revving motor and a honking horn. Welcome back to 95.5, the Bear FM. I'm your host, Big Steve, and I'm broadcasting to all my good friends and families here in the valley. And we have a heck of a mixtape for you today, if you'd pardon my French. So, let's get this rock a-rollin'. We all stayed up late listening to the music. Mom said that he must have slept in or felt under the weather during the day. I think so, too. I'm really glad that he's back. I didn't want to guard the pipe without my DJ. The light in the pipe is still so weak that I have to keep it uncovered so I can make sure that it doesn't get brighter. Lots of rustling and groaning outside. Mom and Dad and Baby Jay don't wake up though. Big Steve comes on to talk about them up above. Remember when the fog first rolled out of the Atlantic? Scary, 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 scary. All those people living on the coast didn't know how to hide from the light. Can't remember the number of disappearances. Must have been in the millions, whatever the population of Newfoundland was. Everybody thought they were vaporized or some such at first. Like the fog was an acid. And you know, maybe something about that's true. But I think we nailed it second try when we started thinking that. Those things walking around out there were all those missing people. Pause. I leaned in closer to the light. I breathed in the air from above. I'm glad they're out there together, and disappearing all alone is one thing. Disappearing while holding the hand of your wife or kid is another. We should all be so lucky. No more radio for that night. No music either. The light pulsed in the pipe, and after a long time standing and staring at it, I noticed that the concrete the tube was set in looked like it was flaking off in places. I poked at it and a large piece fell away, showing the hasty gravel and rock while the dad had balanced the pipe in before slapping it with a concrete slurry. I remembered that it had rained the day that he had installed the ventilation. I started picking at it, throwing the spare pieces into the toilet as I went. I had dug a fair bit into the wall when I heard one of my parents shift around in bed in the other room. I stood still and waited for it to come again. It did so, I decided to get out of there. The hole that I had made was on the far side of the pipe, and more or less invisible to anybody coming in and using the toilet. I threw the last piece into the toilet and tossed in some of the dirt from the bucket after it. I went to bed. Day ten and a half. Mom and Dad stayed up late again to listen to the radio. Big Steve hadn't come on. The music snapped on sometime after dinner, already in the middle of a song. Mom and Dad exchanged a look, but they kept listening for hours. Had to wait a long time to guard the tube. This time, I took a table knife. We weren't using them at all to eat out of our cans, so I knew that it wouldn't be missed. I started back to work on the hole in the wall. Before long, one last piece of concrete on the other side of the head height hole fell away, 
and a shaft of orange light flowed in the bathroom. I dropped the knife to the ground and pressed my face against the hole. I let the fresh air wash over me. Outside was totally silent, draped in a fog that obscured the sight of the fence around our property only a few dozen feet away. I sat there and I bathed in the night air and glow from the fog. After a while, the music that was playing quietly over the radio switched off and I could hear the sound of Big Steve breathing on the other end. It was like we both sat there in silence looking out into the night waiting. We didn't have to wait for long. A faint brushing sound soon rose out of the fog. I held my breath and pressed my other eye to the hole to try to see around the corner of the house. Big Steve also seemed to hold his breath. After an indeterminable amount of time, the walkers in the fog drifted around the corner and I saw it in full view. Just beautiful. Big Steve breathed and I sighed in agreement. It was taller than a man but walked almost like one. It had two legs and two arms anyway, frayed things that drifted up and away from what I supposed were shoulders, equally loose tangles of what Steve had described as yarn, and two legs that barely brushed along the ground to move it along. It had a head, again looking like a loose handful of hair pulled off a brush, and a chest that all of that attached to. It looked like something familiar, but I couldn't quite place it. Its core glowed with the same orange light of the fog, only a little brighter. It seemed to swim along the side of her house with one, one hand, whispering across the siding. When it came close, I realized what it looked like. I had been paging through my biology textbook a few days ago and ended up on a two-page spread showing the human cardiovascular system. Fluffy clouds of veins and thicker highways of major arteries jammed into a humanoid silhouette. That's what these things looked like. Only if they had spread out a lot to drift more freely in the fog. It was beautiful. I felt pressure rise in my chest as it drew closer along the house. It dropped out of sight momentarily as it approached the 90 degree angle where the house met the southern door its low wall into my little hole. It reappeared only a foot away from my face, floating serenely on the tips of its feet. I didn't realize that I had been holding my breath until I let it out in one gust. I saw it move the dark orange capillaries of its nearest leg, and the creature stopped slowly and turned to face the gap. I instinctively drew back a little. Something that I could call a hand meandered down from somewhere above unseen. Tiny thread-like tips questing along the sides of the hole. I watched it and I felt like I was floating. I heard Big Steve murmur. Their eyes, just more connected to the world. Maybe they're connected to another one too. Another world in the fog. A thread of orange capillary brushed one of my cheeks like a spiderweb. A comforting warmth grew from that spot and radiated out into my body. It felt like being seen, being understood. I heard Big Steve's voice now not from the radio but from what seemed to be just over my shoulder. 
Yesterday I took the sledgehammer from downstairs and opened up the side of the studio wall with it. They're all lined up in the parking lot and swaying like seaweed in the tide. I'm not sure how long I stood there in the light. By the time that I came back, the creature was gone and I felt very, very tired. I went back to bed, wrote everything down. I'm tired. Day 11. Mom and Dad and Baby Jay found the hole while I was sleeping. I got up and they were all packed into the bathroom and staring out at a sea of the creatures. It looked like they had even widened it a bit so we had a space around the size of a teacup saucer to bathe in. The fresh air in the view was so nice but Mom and Dad got so close to the hole that I could only see it a little. Still so tired. I brought the radio and my diary into the bathroom to listen and watch and write. It doesn't even smell bad in here anymore, and Baby Jay's thoughts are so relaxing. All wrapped up in his blankie and held in Mom's arms like he is. I'm starting to remember what it felt like when I was a baby. November 14th, 1993. Day 12. It's hard to hold the pencil. Mom and Dad have gone transparent so now the light can come in and wash over me. Baby Jay has a lot less body to be filled with the light so he's already stretched out completely in Mom's arms, draping over them and near the floor and so, so content. My hands don't feel too weak to hold a pencil, just not built for it anymore. My veins and nerves are visible through the skin which seems to have gone from solid flash to almost matching the consistency of the fog in only a day. They're all still outside, swaying and waiting. The fog is supposed to clear today, and we weren't to come out until the siren blew again. Maybe the fog will stay, maybe it'll go. I think we're supposed to go with it, but I don't think that I have the hands to open the hole up wider or even unlock the door to join them. Maybe we'll be allowed to stay and fill the whole cellar with light and fog, even after the main body moves on. I saw Big Steve join the sea outside. He's almost fully changed now, but he still has the same plaid overshirt that I saw him wearing way back when we had helped get a station prepped. Seems forever ago. Now he looks like his shirt is frayed at the sleeves and neck and waist. It kind of looks like his shirt is walking along on its own. Maybe I can see a hint of his skull still. I wonder where all that goes. Is it being dissolved by the light and fog? My own writing hand is a little more than bone wrapped in red and gray thread. I think I'll stop writing very soon. I can hear mom and dad now too and everybody else outside. It's so peaceful to be a part of the fog with them. I thought that it might be a little like how it was after baby Jay was born. All the attention on him, but it's not like that at all. There's so much love in all of us. Goodbye, diary. They're starting to move on. Party notes. I don't know about you all, but I certainly don't remember a fog bank rolling out of the ocean and disappearing people across North America in 1993. I, along with the internet, have also never heard of a band called Poundworks and a song of theirs called Stargazing. I would have written this entire diary off as a piece of fiction, 
if it weren't for an unusual phenomenon that I witnessed when first unboxing it. The entire diary glows faintly with orange light. I have since locked it away separately from my other accounts, in a safe with two-inch thick iron walls and in a closet behind my winter coats. I haven't noticed any adverse effects since being exposed to the diary, but it'll wait in that safe until I can locate a specialist to analyze it further. As for how it got here, well, a particular passage from the diary sticks out. Something said by that incorrigible radio DJ, Big Steve. They're us, just more connected to the world. Maybe they're connected to another one too. Another world in the fog. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.